Well, this morning, my title for this morning is Your Horrifying Sin. As you can tell, uh, we're going to cover a very heavy topic today, um, not a real jovial one at all. I was very thankful this morning that Josiah Grumman preached on Psalm 23 and the Lord's love, because that is an absolute truth to remember. Um, but we also got to realize our unworthiness and our sin as well. And so uh, it's a good, I think, balance to have both of these uh, looked at today. Uh, we've been looking, as you know, at the book of James. We just finished a section on favoritism, and uh, it was a good opportunity to take a little uh, step aside to, to dive in a little deeper on this particular topic. As you recall, the book of James, we've been talking about genuine faith and what does genuine faith look like. And we've seen it's a genuine faith is shown in your response to trials. It's seen in how you respond to God's word and whether how you treat people, whether you show favoritism or not. Um, so it's been a number of evidences of saving faith. And the flip side of that are those who don't have saving faith. And James has used such terms as the one who doesn't have saving faith is he who doubts, is double-minded, is deluded, or even a judge with evil motives. Now, James has already twice used the word sin. In chapter 1, he talked about sin and, and the origin of sin being from lust. And then he's talked about just in our last sermon on favoritism and how favoritism is a sin. Now, James doesn't define sin. As you recall, James is the first book written in the New Testament, and yet he doesn't go into a, a definition of sin and, and, or other terms. And this isn't surprising because what? God did not give us an inspired systematic theology, did he? No, he gave us a book of history, of letters, of poetry, all different genres for us to study. And that's a reminder that theology is not just academic. We can study it that way, and sometimes it's helpful to study it more systematically. But ultimately, theology is truth applied to your life. It always was that, and it always will be. Theology is important for how we live, and the Bible is presented in such a way that we see the theology in the midst of life's circumstances. And so that uh, is a great way as we understand Scripture, and yet times, as I said, it's good to step back and say, Let's dive into one topic of theology, one, one area, and see what all the Bible says about it. Now, as I started preparing for this, I realized we cannot talk about all that the Bible talks about sin. Uh, there's no way to do so, because that would take much longer than 45 minutes. Uh, it would take many, many sermons to talk all about sin. But I wanted to focus on one area of sin in particular, and that is the horrifying aspect of sin. I wanted to focus on how bad sin is and how black sin is. And as I, as I go through this, I'll be quoting uh, liberally from a number of authors. And so I wanted to share some of the resources that I've been studying or that I could recommend as you study this. The first is The Sinfulness of Sin by Ralph Venning. Uh, he's a Puritan, actually a Puritan named Ralph which uh, usually think of, you know, the Thomases and Gregory's, but it's Ralph Venning, excellent book. And most of um, what I've been studying has been through that book, but also a book called Knowing Sin 
by Mark Jones, our own pastor, has wrote an excellent book called The Vanishing Conscience, talking much about sin. Also a book called Respectable Sin by Jerry Bridges, I think is very helpful, especially as we today look at the overall topic of sin. In this book, Respectable Sins, he starts listing them out and even addresses those sins that we may give ourselves a pass for. Of course, it's an ironic title. There are no respectable sins. But as believers, sometimes we give those a pass. So that's an excellent book. The Biblical Doctrine book, uh, our own church's systematic theology, and then uh, Reformed Systematic Theology has quite a long section on sin, which I also found very helpful as well. But as we look at sin today, um, I want to start off by saying, what are the benefits of studying about sin? We may say, why, why are we spending a whole morning on sin? That's not a very fun topic. Um, that's not a very exciting thing. But I think there are at least three benefits that I want to point out to you today. And the first benefit of this, of studying sin, is to hate sin more deeply. Once we see how bad sin is, we will hate it more. And here's a quote from Ralph Venning. It cannot but be extremely useful to let men see what sin is, how prodigiously vile, how deadly mischievous, and therefore how monstrously ugly and odious a thing sin is. And that's certainly my hope for you today, is to see how ugly, how vile sin is, to see sin in some measure for as bad as it is, how wretched and the awful things that is done, and so that we can orient our thinking more properly and orient our lives accordingly. The second benefit besides hating sin is so that we would fight sin more vigorously. Growing in your hatred towards sin will result in you to, to resolve to fight it more fiercely. It humbles us, and then it causes us to want to run from it. We have this quote, Humility issues forth from a right judgment of oneself. The humbling knowledge that they have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They are worthy of having been cast into hell a long time ago. When we see ourselves of deserving God's judgment in hell, that humbles us, and that's a good thing. J.C. Ryle said the first step towards attaining a higher standard of holiness is to realize more fully the amazing sinfulness of sin. So we are benefited by the study of sin because it will cause us to fight sin more vigorously in our own lives. And then third, there's a benefit in that we would love Christ more earnestly. Thomas Watson said, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. And that is so helpful for us to understand. We, we can think lightly of God's grace. We can think lightly of the sacrifice that Christ paid on the cross unless we understand the blackness of our own sin, how wretched and vile and wicked that it is. Uh, for, as an illustration, when uh, you're buying diamonds, and I don't frequently buy diamonds, uh, I did once, and that was about the time I got my wedding photos, just before that. And uh, the person selling diamonds, what do they do when they show you these beautiful gems? They put it against 
black velvet or some black backdrop. And so you can see clearly all the luster of the diamond, all the sparkles, all the facets of its beauty. That black background provides a perfect palette for you to look at that diamond more clearly. And that's what hopefully our study of sin will do. We want to look at the beauty of Christ more clearly. And we can do that better when we rightly understand. We're not going to be uh, hyperbolic. We're not going to be uh, saying things that aren't true. But the, the real reality of sin, is the, rea- the thing is we don't see sin really for what it is. And so to do that is going to help us see Christ better. So we hope to do that today. And I'll be coming back to those benefits as we look at application at the end. But first we've got to say, what is sin? We need to understand what sin is, and Scripture tells the story of sin. In fact, there's only four chapters in the Bible that don't talk about sin, the first two and the last two, before Adam fell and when the new heavens and new earth come to be in the last two chapters. But we understand Scripture as a story of Christ, and that's correct, but it's also we see sin played out. It is Christ against that very black backdrop of sin. And so to under, we need to understand sin throughout the Bible. And to do so, we need to see it in two ways. First, sin is a deprivation of what should be. We can never say God created sin because God creates only what is good. God is perfect and holy. So to say, well, why did God even make sin? Well, he didn't. It is a lack of his holiness. It is a step away from his righteousness. It is not something created by God, but that doesn't mean God is not in control because God is master over it as well. But God did not create sin. But it is a deprivation. It is a lack, a loss of what is good and right. But that is not all it is. We also need to understand that there is a positive inclination toward evil, that sin has a positive energy to it. In fact, the first time that sin is mentioned in all of Scripture in Genesis 4-7, God is speaking with Cain as Cain's countenance fell, jealous at his brother Abel because his offering was not accepted. And the Lord warns him, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Sin is crouching at the door like a wild animal. Sin lies in wait for you. So it is not purely passive, but sin looks to attack. It looks to destroy us. And we can see this in that there are sins in the world. Certainly we see sin of uh, people are motivated by lust and by greed to get things, and they'll do awful things for that. But there are at times a wickedness that has no explanation of self-benefit. There is a wickedness many times in war, sometimes in in vicious crimes that are committed that you think, what is the benefit of the, the vileness, the wickedness that's happening? And that is just out of sin itself. And so we need to understand both aspects of sin and then to define it exactly. And we talked a little bit about this last time, but sin is a lack of conformity to God's will in attitude, thought, or action, whether committed actively or passively. The center of all sin is autonomy, which is replacing of God with self. And we see in that definition both the the deprivation and the positive inclination toward evil. That it is a lack of conformity to God's will or to God's law. And that it is also a seeking of replacing God with self. And this is an accurate definition. 
But I also find that Ralph Venning in his book gives a very vivid description as well, because we could take this academic description and say, okay, I, I got that. But listen to this more vivid description by Ralph Venning. That which sin is accused of and proved to be guilty of is high treason against God. It attempts nothing less than the dethroning and ungodding of God himself. It has unmanned man, made him a fool, a beast, a devil, and subjected him to the wrath of God, and made him liable to eternal damnation. It has made men deny that God is, or affirm that he is like themselves. It has put the Lord of life to death and shamefully crucified the Lord of glory. It is always resisting the Holy Ghost. It is continually practicing the defiling, the dishonor, the deceiving, and the destruction of all men. What a prodigious, monstrous, devilish thing is sin. It is impossible to speak worse of sin than it really is, or even as badly of it as it really deserves, for it is hyperbolically sinful. There are not enough words. We need more and stronger ones to speak of its vileness. These are strong words against sin. The strongest words that he could think of and even ask for more words to describe how bad sin is. And that is what we need, the place we need to get to in our estimation of sin as well. And that's what I hope to do for you today. Why can we say this about sin? That it is more wicked, more vile than any other thing. That anything that happens to be vile or abominable is because of sin. We'll look at the reasons for that today. So what makes sin so horrifying? Let's start here. We begin to see what's so horrifying about sin when we see how contrary it is both to God and to man. So let's first look at the contrariness to God's law. Sin, by definition, is lawlessness. It is against God's law or against God's will. Now, God's law, as we talked about before in James, it's not an arbitrary set of rules that happen to be. This is from the lawmaker. This is from God himself. The law reflects God's perfect righteousness. The law is perfect because God is perfect. God is perfectly holy. We see this in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11, where we see David praise the law of the Lord. He writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God's law is said to be perfect here and right, and pure, and clean, and true, and righteous. And that is true because God is all those things. The law is a reflection of all who God is. So as sin is against God's law, sin is against God himself. Because of the truth that we see in the law, and that sin's opposition to it says that sin is against all that God is himself. The law was written 
so that we might glorify God, that we might reflect his character in obedience. And so it brings God glory. The law is good toward God. It is also good for us. We read there in verse 11, in keeping them, there is great reward. So sin then we see in this passage alone that it is contrary to God and it is contrary to men because by sin encouraging us to go against God's law, it is taking away the blessings that obedience to God's law would bring. But let's dig in more deeply first to how it is contrary to the law, of, to, to God himself. We need to see how much sin works against God. And we will look at this. Those are just what I mentioned. We're going to look first then how sin is contrary to God's character. God is, sin is so against God in every way. We can look at various aspects of his character and see how sin works against those. The first is sin is contrary to God's holiness. God is described as holy, holy, holy by the angels that circle around him. God is holy and it's impossible for him to tempt others as we saw in James 1 or to be tempted by evil. Holy means separate, means set apart. And God is set apart from sin in every single way. And yet sin works contrary to that and wants to work against the holiness of God. Sin is also contrary to God's sovereignty as well. Sin seeks to dethrone God and fights against his sovereign rule. Sin says, God is not in charge. You listen to me instead. Sin says it doesn't matter what God says. And so we need to see how sin is so contrary to God's sovereignty. Next, sin is contrary to God's goodness. Sin thinks lightly of the riches and kindness and tolerance and patience of God. Sin says you can find happiness elsewhere. Sin says, God has given you a law for your good, but I have more for you. I will tell you something that you should seek out instead. And so just um, as we see God's goodness leads us to repentance, sin works against that and says to cling to it. And then fourth, I'll mention that sin is contrary to God's sufficiency. Sin rejects what God offers through obedience and seeks pleasure anywhere but through God. It is like the prodigal son who did not want to be with the father, but wanted to seek goodness, did not find his sufficiency at home with the father, but sought elsewhere. Sin works against what God provides and against God's sufficiency. We could go further, and Ralph Venning says this, in short, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love, as one writer prettily expresses this ugly thing. We may go on and say it is the upbraiding of his providence, the scoff of his promise, and the reproach of his wisdom. Sin is horrifying because it so rails against the character of God in every single way. All that God is, all the the majesty that God is, all the goodness he is in every one of these characteristics, sin opposes every single one of those. It is not only though contrary to God's character, it's contrary to God's existence as well. Sin wishes and even proclaims there is no God, Psalm 10.4. 
Ralph Benning writes this, Sin is contrary and opposite to the being and existence of God. It makes the sinner wish and endeavor that there be no God. For sinners are haters of God, and he who hates his brother is a murderer. So as much as in him lies, he who hates God is a murderer of God. Romans 1 reminds us that all men that know God exist, all men are aware that there is a God, for it is evident in creation. We know that there is a God, every man does, but men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They say, yes, there's a God, but I do not want to know him. I do not want to worship him and exchange God's glory for idols, for images, for other things, for himself, instead of keeping God on the throne. Sin always opposes God and seeks to ungod him, it can be said. This being true, that sin is so contrary to God against his character, against his existence, that sin is working so hard against God, how can we trifle with it? How can we be entertained by it? How can we excuse it in our lives? We, if you're a believer, above all, you love God. The greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God. If you love the Lord your God, you can't love sin. Sin is contrary to God in every way and seeks to annihilate him. We must be stirred in our hatred towards sin because sin hates God. But sin is not only opposed to God, sin is contrary to man as well. It's contrary to us. It would be enough just to say that sin is contrary to God, but let's see also sin being contrary to man. It's against the blessings of obedience to God. As we already saw in Psalm 19.11, in keeping God's law, there's great reward. Well, sin says you don't get that reward. You get, you get the, the temporary joy that I try to bring you, but not the blessings of God. Sin is against man in his body and his health. And because of sin, all the, all the diseases, all the sickness, all the injuries have happened in this world. If sin had never entered this world, neither would death or disease or sickness. And we, we hate things like cancer. We hate these diseases that take away people, those that we love. But we, as we hate those things, let us not forget, if sin had not existed, those would not exist. It is because of sin that God brought a curse onto this world. And so even as we as we speak with those, pray for those who are suffering from some kind of disease, let us that even turn us to hate sin more. Sin is against our body and our health. It's against our conscience as well. And as painful as many diseases are, if you have a clear conscience, you can endure those things. You can go through those with trust and comfort in God. But if you have a Sinful conscience, if your conscience is racked with guilt, it doesn't matter how healthy you are. We see even Judas Iscariot, healthy though he may be after he denied Christ, his conscience was so plagued that he went and hung himself. That is what sin does. Sin destroys, and it does so by destroying even our conscience. Sin destroys peace between individuals. The destructive nature of sin between individuals is evident. Terrorist attacks, 
It's because of sin. We see wars happen. It's because of sin. All manner of fighting, all manner of evil is because of sin. Every argument, every murder, every divorce, every conflict even in the home, sin is behind that. Sin is causing all of the rifts in all relationships. Sin is what's behind it. We gotta hate sin. Why wouldn't we hate sin more and do everything we can to rid ourselves of it? It is behind the lack of peace in our world. Sin is against understanding. Sin darkens men's understanding. It causes confusion. It causes foolishness. Those who walk in sin walk in darkness. And they do not know the truth. They do not know the way. That is a design of sin, to darken our understanding. Sin is against eternal peace in heaven. Sin is contrary to men because it leads them to eternal judgment. God has given the opportunity through faith in Christ, trusting in the work of Christ to know him. Sin says, no, you take this passing pleasure and instead do what I ask and then you will face eternity in torment. And that is how sin most violently works against each one of us. It is contrary to God and to man. It works to dethrone God, and it works to destroy us in every way possible. Is sin horrifying? Yeah, I hope you see that from this description, to see how contrary it is to God, to see how contrary it is to man. But I have to go further. What evidence do we see of sin's horror? We can say that, okay, I, I understand it's contrariness, but is there, there evidence, is there things we can see that also shows sin's horror? And there is. There is. God shows his hatred of sin. It's evidenced in a number of different ways. First, God's punishment of the wicked on the earth. And this is throughout the Bible. We can see God punishing the wicked. We could see uh, the world, the time of Noah, being destroyed by flood. Why was it? Because men's hearts were wicked. We could see here, read about the plagues in Egypt that came upon them, the destruction, the death. Why did that happen? That was God's judgment on sin. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire. Korah and his followers, the earth opened up and swallowed them. Ananias and Sapphira, they dropped dead for lying to God. God hates sin, and we see his hatred against sin so clearly in all these ways that he has judged people on this earth. We even see God's hatred against sin in that he disciplines his children. God loves us so much that he disciplines us when we sin. He knows how destructive sinful is to us. That it's not only contrary to him, he knows it's destructive to us, so he disciplines us. It says, God has executed judgment on his own people when they have sinned to show how hateful sin is, even in those he dearly loves. One would think that if God would spare any, he would spare his own. And indeed, he pities them and spares them as a father, pities and spares the son who serves him. But though he forgives them, yet he takes his vengeance on their iniquity. Now we know the full vengeance is taken on Christ on the cross for believers. 
But God does discipline us to rid us of the sin in our life. And we can see how much God must hate sin to want us to be out of it. The, the very children that he's chosen, he reluctantly but, but lovingly disciplines so we might be free of sin. We see another evidence of the horrifying nature of sin and how God hates it in his punishment of the wicked in eternity. And this is probably the clearest way to understand the horror of sin when we think about the terror of hell. Sin being wicked, sin being vile, is, can seem academic at times and we, it's hard to visualize. Hell is described for us in quite some detail in Scripture and mostly by Christ. And he talks a lot about hell. And when we understand that hell was created to punish sin, for the devil and his angels, for sinners to go there for eternity, we better understand how horrible sin is, how horrific sin is when we think about hell. But it's a just thing for God to do. It says, God often punishes less than iniquity deserves, but never more. The greatest sufferings are neither more nor less than sin deserves. God damns no man except for sin. Damnation is a punishment, and all punishment presupposes guilt and transgression. Death is but sin's wages, that which sin has merited. Man's undoing is only the fruit of his doing. Hell, as bad as it is, and we're going to look at it here, is the right and just punishment for sin. It is the punishment that absolutely fits the crime, that perfectly fits the crime. So let us look a bit at what hell is. Hell is the complete lack of any good thing. There is nothing good in hell. Hell is the complete loss of all relationships. There will be profound and overwhelming loneliness in hell, with no one to commiserate with, no one to encourage you, no one to speak with you at all. Hell, you lose all of that in hell. Hell provides no peace, no hope, even after years or decades or even millennia. Hell, will, you'll never have peace, no matter how long you were there. It lacks any measure of comfort, any pity, or any mercy. Hell is the loss of any relief or any hope whatsoever. Even in this world, those who reject God, they, they hold on to a false hope, and that gets them through. But in hell, there won't even be a false hope. There is no hope. It is eternal lack of any hope, any chance for forgiveness, any chance of restitution. It is final. And hell is the separation from the presence of God. Hell is the lack of anything good, anything close to good. It does not have it. Ralph Venning writes, This damnation state of sinners will admit no relief. It will be punishment without pity, misery without mercy, sorrow without succor, crying without comfort, torment without ease. The sinner can look for no relief from God, for God judges and condemns him. None from conscience, for that accuses and abrades him. 
None from devils, for they torment him. None from hope, for that is departed from him. None from time, for this state is forever. There is no good and there is no relief. But that is not all. Hell is described as a place of exceeding sorrow where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of fiery flames and unquenchable fire where the soul never dies. Hell is a place of outer darkness and to be in complete darkness and yet be engulfed in flames, is, it's unknown in this world. It's hard to imagine how can you have the pain and suffering of flames and not at least have the consolation of its light. And yet that is how hell is described. It's a place of excruciating pain beyond what we can imagine. It's a place of continuous and unrelenting torment. Hell is the unmitigated cup of God's wrath poured upon the sinner. God's righteous judgment upon those who have committed the high treason of sin. Even in studying this, in reading this, it is so sobering. Um, as I was studying and you know, tears were coming to my eyes, just recognizing this is, this is real, this is true. And it is hard to take, but it is a reality. Ralph Benning writes, the punishment that sinners must undergo will be such a state of misery that all the miseries of this life are not to be compared with it. They are nothing to it. The gripings and grindings of all the diseases and torments that men do or can suffer in this life are like flea bites to it. To pluck out a right eye or cut off a right hand would be a pleasure and recreation in comparison with being damned in hell. Now, at this point, we may protest and say, wait, that's, such punishment is too much. That is unfair. That is more than I can, can take to even read, much less imagine what it is. But the problem is not that hell is so bad. The problem is that we don't understand how bad sin is. We need to understand this is the right and just punishment for sin. This is what sin deserves. And so while we wince, while we may even want to protest against all that hell is and is described as, we have to instead say, you know what? That is how Christ described it. That is what it is. And that is the righteous judgment for what sin is. And may I hate sin all the more when I see God's punishment for it, the crime that it is. So uh, may this, the dread and terror of hell provide fuel for us for our hatred of sin. May you think upon hell and, and realize that is, that is what sin deserves. And so may I hate sin all the more. So we see the evidence of God's hatred of sin by looking at hell, but we see it in one other way that I don't want to miss. We see it also in God's crushing of his son. The horrifying reality of hell has only been matched one time in history. And that is when Christ suffered on the cross. When he took our sin upon him and he drank the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. 
And we struggle to understand how the penalty that Christ paid on the cross is in any way equivalent to the terror of hell. But that's only because we don't understand the holiness of Christ. If we can understand that hell is what sin requires and that Jesus in the very same way took on God's wrath on the cross, we realize, well, Christ is glorious. Christ, to take that sin, to bear that weight, we can only appreciate what Christ has done all the more. If we were only able to full, more fully comprehend the work of Christ in his atoning death and how he endured separation from the Father, how he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, how he endured God's wrath in a greater measure than any person ever could or even can conceive, then we would see sin in all its wicked destructiveness and hate it for what it is because of what Christ has done. I has not seen nor ear heard nor has it, nor can it enter into the heart of man to conceive what Christ suffered. The greatness of Christ's suffering is a full witness against the sinfulness of sin. What an odious thing sin must be to God. For sin to take his only son, as we reminded for service of the father's love for the son, a love beyond what we can understand, and he would take his son and send him to the cross to die and separate from him and pour out his wrath upon him. Well, how bad must sin be for the father to do that to the son? John Flavel says, Oh, the depth of the evil of sin. If you ever wish to see how great and horrible an evil sin is, measure it in your thoughts, either by the infinite holiness and excellency of God, who is wronged by it, or by the infinite sufferings of Christ, who died to atone for it. And then you will have a deeper apprehension of its enormity. What happened to Christ on the cross? When we are tempted to sin and to think, oh, this is just a small thing. I could be forgiven by this. Oh, you know what? It's not that big a deal. Remember what it did to Christ on the cross. And may that cause us to hate sin. Well, finally, I want to talk more about application to this. Application to the horror of sin. And we, I touched on this briefly, but I want to go a little more in depth as we think, okay, sin is awful. Sin is more awful than I had previously thought, and even more than I understood or appreciated how do we apply this? One, again, hate sin more deeply. And we must learn to hate sin, and I want to compare it to suffering, and, and Ralph Venning does this in his book as well. We must learn to hate sin more than suffering. While no suffering is pleasant, sin is so much worse than suffering. Sin and suffering should not even be on the same scales. L listen to what Scripture says of suffering. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes, Psalm 119.71. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
knowing that the testing of her faith produces endurance. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We see in these suffering, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Well, there is nothing good in sin. It is never, you can never say it was good for me that I sinned. Suffering, yes, you can say that. 2 Corinthians 4, momentary light affliction is producing eternal weight of glory. Our sin does not produce glory. Our sin only produces a building up, a storing up of wrath, it says in Romans. It says to consider joy when you face trials. And scripture never tells us to have joy in our sin. Sin only brings sorrow. And the comfort with which God supplies in our affliction is not comforted when we sin. We receive no comfort. When we repent, yes. When we turn from our sin, yes, but not while in our sin. There is no comfort. Suffering is always preferable to sin. We may choose to endure suffering rather than sin and must choose suffering rather than sin. While suffering works to make us perfect, sin works to destroy us. And again, Ralph Benning, and now indeed no affliction seems to be joyous for the present. Although they are not to be desired, yet they may be endured. Sin, on the contrary, is neither to be desired nor endured. Any sin is worse than any suffering. One sin, then all suffering. And the least sin, then the greatest suffering. What then? Is sin worse than to be whipped, to be burnt, to be sawn asunder? Yes, by a great deal. It is clear from what our Savior says. Fear not them who can kill, but fear him that can damn. That is, it is better to be killed than to be damned. You may more easily suffer from man than sin against God. One may suffer and not sin, but it is impossible to sin and not suffer. They who avoid suffering by sinning, sin themselves into worse suffering. And you may think, I can't endure any more suffering at the hands of a person at my workplace or my spouse or how my children treat me. It's only fair that I respond in anger sometimes. It's only fair that I respond with unkindness and harsh words. Sin, my, my sinful reaction is but a small thing to the suffering that I'm receiving from this person. But brothers and sisters, that's not true. It's not true. No matter how much suffering you receive from anyone, even those close to you, sin is so much worse. And one response of sin to a lifetime of suffering is worse to have that sinful response than all the suffering that you've received. Because sin is against God. Sin is a work to hate and kill and dethrone God. Though you endure all manner of suffering or refuse to sin against your Savior. That's how much we should hate our sin. Never give an excuse to it. Well, secondly, application to the horror of sin. Fight it more vigorously. 
A right response to studying it is to hate the sin and wickedness around us in the world. And it's proper, it's right that we're disgusted in the sin in this world. And there is much, is there not? We see sin, whether it's in the terrorist attacks or whether it's in uh, the homosexual, transgender agendas. We see sin everywhere. And it's right to be disgusted by that. It's right to be appalled by that. But the sin of the world should never grieve us as much as our own sin. You cannot control other people's sin. You can't stop other people from sinning, but you can. If you're a believer, you're free from the power of sin. You are not a slave to sin. You don't have to sin. And by sinning, you are choosing to do so. And you have control over your response to anyone. That should remind you, I need to hate my own sin because that's the only sin that I can avoid. It's the only sin I can put to death is my own sin. It is easier, John Flavel said, it's easier to declaim against a thousand sins of others than to mortify one sin in ourselves. How easy it is to point the finger at those sins, but we need to start with ourselves. How am I killing the sin in my own life? And the first thing to do is to confess it to God, right? First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may say, this is too much, all this talk about sin. It's too heavy for me. We'll go to the Lord. He's ready to forgive. We just need to confess our sin before God. God's grace is greater than your sin. As great as sin is, God's grace is greater. And again, we can see and appreciate God's grace all the more when we see the blackness of our own sin and what our own sin deserves. How amazing is God's grace? Also, refuse it more faithfully. We can't stop a confession alone, but must also repent from our sin. There is a sorrow for sin, but it must be, 2 Corinthians 7.10, a sorrow that leads to repentance. It must be a change. Our hatred from sin should cause us to turn from it, to flee from it, to kill it in our own lives every way that we can. God's grace is greater than our sin, but shall we who have died to sin still live in it, it says? No, may it never be. May it never be. And then finally, the application is love Christ more earnestly. We've seen God's extreme hatred towards sin and how he destroyed the world in the flood. We looked at God's hatred of sin, so evidence in the punishment of hell for those who've died in their sin. Let that in turn cause us to marvel at Christ's sacrifice more profoundly. He paid the awful penalty that was meant for you and me. We deserve, every one of us, God's wrath in hell for eternity. That weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness, the fiery flames that we read about, that should be every one of us. Christ paid for that. He took that on himself. How much we should marvel at what Christ has done with his death on the cross, bearing that weight of sin for us. And then let us wonder at his grace more deeply. The God whom we have despised and sought to dethrone has reached out in grace to us as sinners. The high treason we committed against the holy, kind, and patient king of the universe 
was gracious to us and said, if you but confess and repent and come to me, I will forgive your sin. That your sin is paid for by Christ. You don't have to pay for that. What grace is that? Amazing grace. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? May we live with a greater disgust for sin in our own lives and a greater gratitude, appreciation for God's grace towards us as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, studying about sin, speaking of sin even now, thinking on horrifying sin, God, Lord, is such a heavy burden and it's so sobering. And yet, we also know the great, amazing grace that you have shown through Christ, the forgiveness that you provide, the mercy that is ours through the work of Jesus. Lord, help us to hate sin more. Help us to prize Christ more. Lord, I pray that we would not make excuses for our sin, that we would never even come close to wanting to sin, to to allowing it, God, that we would put it off, that we would take those necessary measures, however drastic they may seem, Lord, to avoid sin in our own lives. Lord, we want to see you glorified. Make us more worthy vessels, Lord, that we would walk worthy of the gospel to which you've called us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.